This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. So good to have you here at Total Member Involvement. This is session number four, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, uh, encouragingly titled, The Ministry That Died and Nobody Noticed. Okay? So, we're going to be covering some of the principles we've already talked about in the Total Member Involvement sessions. Uh, this one is going to be, we're moving more and more from theory to principle. I mean, from principle to practical as we go along. Uh, so, you'll see a transition there. But we're going to start with a bit of Bible study. So, I would encourage you, if you have your, I'm sorry, since you have your Bibles with you, to take out your Bibles or your digital version of the Word. And we're going to be doing some Bible studies and seeing that some of the issues that we're facing in the church today are not new, that they were facing in the Old Testament time and the New Testament time, and the Lord has given us insight into how to cover some of the problems we're seeing already. Um, anyway, with that little preface, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's get going. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for today. Thank you that we're each one in this room alive for it. And in this time, at this moment, in this place, we have the opportunity to discuss important issues. Please guide our conversation. Bless this time that we have together. And let us be informed, yes, but transformed into the very image of Christ so we can not only live like him, but work like him and see him come soon and very soon. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take out your Bibles, please. And let's go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. As, you know, the, to give you a little background, and I'm going to ask, oh, I was supposed to make this announcement also. They're not doing the scanning as you come in. They're going to be doing the scanning as you leave, and I assume you know what that means. I think they're tracking you. <laughs> I think the government has asked us to do this, and we're, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but as you go out, they want to scan cards to get in, you know, an attendee enrollment or whatever. I don't know. But just do it on the way out and go out that door, okay, when, you're, when we're done. And with that being said, if we could close the door so the hall conversation could not bleed into here, I would appreciate it because we have conversation over there and out there, and it gets a little bit, you know, much. Anyway, in the book of Exodus, obviously, Exodus comes from X to come out. Right? And you remember that's the calling out of God's people out of the land of bondage in Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses was their visible leader. And it, a fascinating study, if you ever get into it, is you look at the very first chapter of Exodus and when the people came into Egypt, how did they get down to Egypt in the first place? Does anybody remember? There was a famine in the land, right? And Joseph and the, he was sold by his brothers and then the rest of the family came down. And does anybody remember about how many people came down into Egypt? About 70. About how many people came out of Egypt? <laughs> Including the mixed multitude, close to two million. Now, here's the next question. How long were they in Egypt? Oh, everybody said the wrong answer. It was not 400 years. It wasn't 430 either. It was 215. Look it up sometime. Study out the 430, and you'll find out that the 400 and those 400-year times started way back at the call of Abraham and the birth of his son. But Joseph didn't get down into Egypt till halfway through that chronology. So they were only in Egypt. So in the span of a couple hundred years, 
their numbers went. So, for instance, go to the Exodus chapter 1. This is not exactly on our notes, but, you know, you're getting the live in-person bonus material. <laughs> go to Exodus chapter 1. There's a fascinating statement. Um, well, it says, I'll just read very quickly here. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man of his household came with Jacob, and it lists them off. And it said, um, verse 5, all those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel, now listen to the language, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. It's almost as if they ran out of words to say they grew a lot, Right? And so that's what happened. In fact, they were, the, that was the issue. There was so much. They gave them, if you remember, they gave them the best land, the land of Goshen. It was nice because they were just a little family with their little sheep and whatnot. And then they just started, there was something in the water. And boy, they just started proliferating. And the Egyptians were like, what are we going to do with all these people? We must enslave them to keep them under control and are under thumb. And that's when the whole persecution. But they weren't in slavery for 400 years. It was only for the last little bit. There's a whole other sermon in there. But God called this group of people out. He said, all right, basically used Egypt as an incubator. To... And out comes this large group of people. And Moses is tasked with calling them out of Egypt and leading them on to the promised land. So now let's turn over to Exodus chapter 18 to continue the story a little later on. Now we're not going to go through all the plagues and all of that. Our crucial um, pericope, the little section of scripture, is going to be in Exodus chapter 18. As they've come out of the land of Egypt, they've crossed uh, the, the Red Sea and they're headed on their way to Canaan. And Moses goes to meet his father-in-law. I encourage you, have good rapport with your father-in-law. It's a good thing. But the father-in-law, if you skip down to verse 13, watches Moses go to work one day. Now that would be an intimidating day. Your father-in-law comes and just watches you work and critiques you all day. <laughs> That's what happened. And look what the scripture says, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And notice the righteous, well-intended answer that Moses gives. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. You can put it in other words, I'm their pastor. Of course they come to me. They have questions and I give them answers. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. I preach to them and tell them what to do with their dispute. And they say, next, next. They deal with people all day long. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Now notice, it's not wrong what he's doing. It's not immoral. It's not unethical. It's just not efficient. It's not a good way to work. He says, both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Now, have you ever noticed that standing in a long line, you're not really doing anything and it's exhausting? You ever been to like the DMV or any place run by the government, pretty much, you know? These long lines, I was at the post office before Christmas and you just might as well give up on buying your stamp. You know, you're just there for, and, and just standing in line, 
waiting for next, next, and you've got that number, and you're 287, and they're on 14. And you're like, oh, I just start to despise this number in this place. You just get, and you leave. You haven't walked anywhere. You haven't climbed anything. You haven't lifted weights, but you're exhausted just from being there, right? Jethro says, what you're doing is, this is bad. It's not wrong. It's just not good. He explains, you're going to wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you, and you're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before the people so that they may bring the difficulties to God. Now, notice verse 20. And you shall. Now, now, before we read verse 20, skip back now to verse 16. When Moses gives his explanation for why he's working this way, he says, When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So I tell them what the right thing is, and I explain why that was the right thing, and then I send them on their way. Notice what's added here in verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes and laws. He's like, I'm already doing that. That's good. And show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Aha. So not only are you supposed to teach the principles of God's law, but you're supposed to put it in practical terms so they don't have to come back around and just get in the back of the line and come back again. You should teach them how to work. That's the element you're missing. Okay? Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, having, hating covetousness and placing such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifty, and rulers of tens. By the way, small groups is not a new idea. It's not like a newfangled church growth method. It's not even an apostolic thing. This is an Old Testament from the very first time there was a church. He said, you know what? You've got this one big mega congregation. Break it down into smaller groups and have leaders over them. And then have that into smaller groups. And have a bunch of little leaders doing specific tasks in these, these particular areas. We come up with it like, oh, what a novel thing. <laughs> That's like it's, it's been in Exodus for a long time. And it says, and let them judge between the people at all times. So who are the permanent on the ground workers for everybody? It's the small group leaders, the individual congregation leaders, right? Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you. So is now Moses unemployed and he just sits back? No. But proportionally, he's doing the same amount of work as they're doing. He's just doing a different type of work. He's doing the greater matters and the weightier issues, right? But all the daily stuff, they can take care of. Do you see that? Okay, keep going. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. So note that his job as a worker for God is to raise up other workers for God. So you'd have a whole group of workers and not just one worker with a whole group of watchers. And obviously you're going to see the parallels, but I believe in the Seventh Adventist Church today we have a structure, and I don't mean the physical brick-and-mortar structure of the church, I mean an expectation in our minds, a picture of how the church operates, that you have one man working and a hundred watching. We have to change that. 
we have far too many watchers and not enough workers. This is what God was saying through Jethro to Moses. So it will be easier for you, for they shall bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. (laughs) Be able to endure. He's talking about ministerial burnout. Right? And if you notice, the one time that Moses finally cracked was when he took the burden on himself. Must we bring water from this rock? You, you know. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all this people will also go to their place in peace. I don't know if you've ever left the DMV, but most people who leave are not leaving so in peace. But everybody gets it. They've got their part in the share. They've got their shoulder to the work. And everybody gets along better when everybody's working together. Verse 24. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers over thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Tens even. Did you notice that? Jethro started, went the lowest was 50, and here he goes down to 10. Small groups. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went, on his, and went his way to his own land. The visit with Jethro is included in Scripture, not because they had a meal together. It's because there was an organization of the work that Moses, as God's appointed leader, needed to understand as they were going forward. This is before they were given the Ten Commandments, before they had the sanctuary structure. This was one of the very first things. When God calls his people out, the very first thing he does is start to organize them. Organize them for service. The church is God's appointed agency for the salvation of men. You've heard that statement before. It's nothing has changed. God has the same expectation for his church today as he did thousands of years ago, that every member would be involved. Uh, Let's break this down. Notice the responsibilities of Moses' job as church leader was, number one, to teach the people God's statutes and the laws. He was to be an expositor of the word of God. Number two, show the people, quote, the ways in which they must walk and the work they must do. So teach them, you preach to them the, the, the message of God and teach them the work they should do. Number three, select leaders and place them in positions of responsibility. Do we still have a selection of leadership process in the local Seventh-day Adventist church? Yes, it's called the? And all the people said amen. Let me tell you something. Nominating can get a bad rap sometimes. It is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And number four, let the appointed local leaders, quote, judge the people at all times while Moses dealt with every great matter. You empower them. You give them responsibility. Give them the job description. Say, now go do that. Now let's have some accountability. And you come answer back, which is, by the way, what a board is. And the church business meeting gets to hear reports about what's going on. But this was a local church structure that God himself set up for the first church on earth, outside of the family of Eden, right? After the exodus here. Years later, however, the Israelites reverted. It seems to be the case that we always kind of want to go to a visible leader instead of trusting in an invisible God through his word. Notice, if you go to the right in your Bibles there, to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 8, 
Here the children of Israel wanted a change in leadership style. God had set up these judges and rulers to judge the people over hundreds and fifties and you know, all the different group sizes and whatnot, and that had gone for a while, but verse 1, chapter 8, says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. So that same judges system was in place. And it lists the name of his sons, but it says in verse 3, But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So let's pause right there. Do the people have some legitimate concerns about the judges? Yes. But they should not have abandoned the system of judges. They had to address those particular judges, right? But notice what they said. Instead of having judges at all, verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. That is just mean by the way. They said, we've got a couple of problems. First of all, we don't have a problem with you, but you're old, and you're going to die. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us. Notice what it says. Like all what? Like all the nations. Where did they get the idea of having a king from? From all the other nations. They said, we're weird. We need a settled path. I mean, a, a king. Like all the other church, I mean, all the other nations have. Right? So we're tired of being odd. And it's not working out. These ones are bad. And you're old. So give us a king. Just... Now, did God allow them to have a king? Yes. Was it his ideal? No. And he told them, this is what it's going to look like if you do this. But they did it anyway. Let's skip to the New Testament. Go to the book of Acts. Let me show you an interesting drift in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. The newly converted believers on the day of Pentecost were on fire for the Lord. And the day of Pentecost, they were literally on fire for the Lord. But in Acts chapter 2 there, it starts there in verse 40 after Peter gives his sermon. It's a powerful sermon. 26 verses, 13 are quoting scripture. By the way, how do I say this? The, the Seventh-day Adventist church needs to be more Pentecostal. As the Bible describes Pentecost. Read Acts chapter 2. How many praise bands do you find in there? None. Now, I'm not against music. I'm just saying, was that the power that moved the church? No. How many faith healings? None. Speaking in tongues was not gibberish. It was understandable. It was clear speech. The sermon quoted scripture. Half of the sermon from the day of Pentecost is quoting scripture. And what was the message? It was present truth. The same Jesus that 50 days ago you were chanting crucify is now Lord in Christ. He was preaching a present truth message from the word of God in plain language without all the other accoutrement. We need to be more Pentecostal. You'll say amen later. It's okay. 
But notice in verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Pause right there. I just have to add this in here. Notice that baptism doesn't just join you to the idea of Jesus. It joins you to the body of Jesus, which is the church. The souls were added to them and to the church, right? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking bread and the prayers. Notice that after they got baptized, they continued to study the doctrine. We call that discipleship and fellowship. Too often we see that evangelism and the, and, and the gaining of a member through baptism is the end of the process. We all say, amen, and we sing a song, and then what? These people continued. We need full evangelism, which is discipleship, right? He's on. Then fear, uh, it says, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles and now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So there was a spirit of sharing with others and giving what they had. There was a genuine community. It was beautiful. And that's Acts chapter 2. Skip over now to Acts chapter 4. And you'll see that the same basic thing from the day of Pentecost was repeated. The same message was given in a powerful sermon. And it says, the result, verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Sounds almost word for word like the Pentecostal experience. And skip down to verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and verse 35 is our key, and laid them where? At the apostles' feet. Were the apostles in need? Why were they giving all this stuff to the apostles? For what purpose? To distribute to whom? To those who had need, right? And laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Do you see a difference? Acts 2, they saw a need, and they gave, and they fixed it. In Acts 2, they saw a need, and they gave to the apostles for them to fix it. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a, what's the word? complaint or dispute against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribute. Who was doing the distributing? The apostles. It says now there a, a, a complaint arose. I like to joke and say, thus we have the first official church. Verse 2, then the twelve disciples, the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Did they say that the work of distributing was beneath them? No. That it was somehow ignoble and... No. It's a great job. It just wasn't their job. But notice that it had started, it just had become their job. And they quickly realized that if we do this, 
our work will, our forward movement work will stop and we will just be hovering over this congregation. And all the maps in the back of the Bible will just have a dot instead of lines where they went out to other places, right? So what do they do? How do they remedy this situation? Therefore, brethren, seek out from where? From Craigslist. <laughs> from the want ads, from monster.com. No. Where are they going to find these church workers? Seek out from the seminary. From among you. Seven men of good reputation. Now, it's not just anybody. There's got to be some qualification to this, right? We're looking for men who have the Holy Spirit, who have good reputation, full of wisdom, that we may appoint over this business. So they said, you choose from among yourselves. And dumped it at um, nominating committee. You think I'm joking. I'm serious. This is a biblical concept. Everybody thinks we made up nominating committee. It comes from the Bible. But it says, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, if we joke that the first official church organization was when they started to complain, then the first miracle is verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. <laughs> and then it lists off the men chosen. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. By the way, does Stephen do more than just distribute goods and hand out stuff? Yeah, he stands for the faith, and then the very next chapter becomes the first Christian martyr. He was not an ordained minister. He was a local church leader who had a local responsibility, but was a defender of the faith. And Philip, by the way, does Philip get mentioned again? Sure, after Stephen's death in Acts 7, go to Acts chapter 8, you find about Philip. And what's he doing? Being called to give that testimony and give that Bible study to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? The Bible is trying to show us a lay-driven movement. Anyway, and it lists off others, then it says, verse 7, what was the result? Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We read this statement last time, but it's from Ministry of Healing 147. Everywhere, there's a tendency to substitute the work of organizations for individual effort. Human wisdom tends to consolidation, to centralization, to the building up of great churches and institutions. Multitudes leave to institutions and organizations the work of benevolence. They excuse themselves from contact with the world and their hearts grow cold. They become self-absorbed and unimpressible. Love for God and man dies out of the soul. Christ commits to his followers an individual work, a work that cannot be done by proxy. Ministry to the sick and the poor, the giving of the gospel to the lost is not to be left to committees and organized charities. Individual responsibility, individual effort, personal sacrifice is the requirement of the gospel. God expects that every person who has been a recipient of the gospel go to work for the cause of God. And I, you know, I mentioned just because we have Mark Finley out doing evangelistic campaigns doesn't mean you're not supposed to go win your neighbor. Just because we have ADRA doesn't mean you're not supposed to bake bread or go help the community service center, right? Just because we have large institutions and institutional leaders, God bless them good as they are, that's not to supplant or replace the work you're supposed to do. God expects every member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to be a missionary for him, period. It's always been that way, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and now in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, 
Let's flip over, if you have this, to the other side. Of the, and if we have any spare time, we'll do some open the floor for some questions. We've had some come up afterwards, but if you want question and answer, we can do that too. Uh, but let's walk through a typical Seventh-day Adventist church structure now. In a previous presentation, we saw how the Seventh-day Adventist church movement grew rapidly by the work of local church members who were trained to care for the services and various ministries of the local church. Sadly, like the Israelites of old and the early church believers, we seem to have drifted away from God's ideal. So, most Seventh-day Adventist churches function in roughly this way. And if you have, like I said, on your little app, there's a little diagram. You can see that, right? If not, I'll just explain it to you. Um, There's basically three parts to the work. There's the administrative work of the church, which is kind of behind-the-scenes labor. Okay, That's where you have uh, personal spiritual preparation, You have business meetings, you have board meetings, you have departmental meetings, you do various administrative duties like printing the bulletin every week and making sure that uh, paperwork is in order and all this kind of stuff. But that's the the behind-the-scenes work of the church, administrative. Then you have the work of the church, which involves the ministry to the church members, which we have an open invitation to the community. And then we have ministry to the community with an open invitation to the church. Right? So both are welcome in both things, but one is primarily for members, the other is primarily for non-members, okay? So when it comes to the ministry to the church or for the church members, that we kind of have an open invitation, but we fully expect that it's 99% going to be members. In fact, we might be shocked if a visitor showed up. Um, Worship services, for the most part, are not there for visitors, they're for the members to come and get their blessing. Prayer meeting. People are like, that's for members? Members are allowed to go? Yes, you're supposed to go to prayer meeting. Sabbath school. Even though it was intentionally designed to be an outreach opportunity, most of the time it's just, you know, for the members. Social events oftentimes are just for the members, primarily for the members. And, of course, you can invite people to come to Sabbath school, invite people to come to prayer meeting, invite people to church, invite people to the social, but the purpose of it was originally for the church member, and if you want to bring somebody along, you can. Does that make sense? Now, on the other hand, we have things specifically designed as what we call them outreach events. Those are the ones that are open to the community, expecting to have visitors, and we hope that church members will support them by attending as well. Those are things like uh, Bible seminars, like you know, prophecy campaigns and that kind of stuff and various events. Uh, group outreach events where you go out and distribute. You know, you, when you go door to door, you expect that you're going to the doors of non-members and not members. That would be weird if you just went knocking on members' doors. That would be, maybe you should try it sometime, just see what happens. But um, Health seminars, we do a health expo. It's for the public, right? Uh, vacation Bible school, you're really wanting to get it as an outreach, get new kids in there. Um, community service center, you're fully expecting that most of your clientele are non-members, but members can come and support and attend. So you have basically... Um, if the church is doing those three activities, that the administrative work is going on well, for instance, the budget is being kept, the board meetings are regularly happening, the positions by the nominating committee are filled, uh, the bulletin is regularly printed and is relatively accurate, the website is kept up, the audiovisual team is doing you know, those behind the scenes. If those structural things are occurring, you're like, check, good. And if you have an ongoing regular worship service and a Sabbath school program and a prayer meeting and, you know, those types of ministries 
are happening, then good. And if you couple that with outreach, that you're also beyond that doing vacation Bible school and evangelistic campaigns and all of those big things, well, great, right? That seems very good. You've got your administrative work done, the ministry to the church family and the communities to be taken care of. You have plenty of activities and programs and even public evangelism. Most of us look at that saying that is a church doing it right. Perhaps they even have steady tithe. Now the conference will think you're doing it right. <laughs> you know, your tithe is steady or even increasing. Stable membership. They're not all running to the competing Seventh Avenue church down the road. Your budget is healthy. You're not like in the black or always having to dip into the revolving fund just to keep operations going. You're on a financial steady plane and having a slow, steady trajectory up. All the administrative stuff is taken care of. All the church things are taken care of. All the outreach is going on. That's a good, healthy church. So what's wrong? Well, there's a huge, massive, gaping black hole in that church. And nobody noticed that it was gone. And that was what we call personal ministries. Okay? It used to be called lay ministries. I'm guessing they changed the name for one of two reasons. Either they didn't want to continue the unbiblical description between clergy and laity as the workers and the watchers. They didn't want to continue that, so they used to call it personal ministries. Or everybody made the joke that we're going to go to lay ministries and they were just taking a nap. <laughs> yeah. But one of those two things happened, or maybe a combination of both, and they changed the name from lay ministries to personal ministries. But personal ministries is where the purpose of that department is to get everybody in the church doing something personally. That's the point. And there was a time in the Seventh Avenue Church when the personal ministries department was robust. It was, it was replete with lots of resources and training events and all kinds of outreach opportunities. And now, I almost guarantee that in most churches, liter, uh, 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 personal ministries is a literature rack. It might be a glow tract it might be one of those turning ones that have some sharing books or something. And they might have one person who is the personal ministries leader, and their job is to tell you about the rack. Right? I just wanted to remind you, we have a rack. It used to be a centerpiece of the church. But somehow over time, and I think it goes along with what we had in our previous presentation, we drifted away from every member being involved in the work, and the clergy have taken over the work of the church. Any church that doesn't have a pastor is deemed understaffed, right? And somehow this ministry has died, and nobody noticed. So let's reimagine this church as what Sister White talked about, a training center church. Remember, every church should be a training school for Christian workers. What would that look like? Well, you would still have to do your preparatory work. You'd still have all the administrative duties. You'd have to, you know, personal spiritual preparation, business meetings, board meetings, departmental meetings, administrative, all that stuff would be the same. You would still have ministry to the church, like the worship service, prayer meetings, Sabbath school, church school, and such events, social events. You'd also have ministry to the community, Bible seminars, group outreach events, health seminars and events, vacation Bible schools, community services centers, and on and on and on. But what you would have is all of, let's put it, 
all of those things, the administrative and the outreach and the inreach, those are all components of an engine, but they have no fuel or oil to run well. Okay? Those structures are in place to help you as a member do your work of ministry. But somehow the structure has become the ministry itself. So that if those things are in place, the church is doing well. And success is no longer seen as soul winning by the members. Success has become defined as we're not closed yet. Have you had church growth? No, but we haven't had people die that much. So we're pretty even keel. Have you had tithe increase? No, but it hasn't decreased. No apostasy. Good. How's your membership? Well, it's not going up, but we haven't cleared the books either, so we've got good numbers. (laughs) Like, it just becomes, we're still here. And simply surviving has become succeeding. We need to redefine the terms a little bit. We're going to be looking at the church manual, not in this particular session, but in sessions coming up. But you'll notice that the first work of the board is evangelism in all of its phases and the spiritual nurture of all members. The primary work of the board is not to run the finances of the church. It's not even the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. I'm not kidding. It's not even the tenth item on the church board agenda, according to the church manual. It's supposed to be, what is the work we've been called to do, and how are we doing it well? And who's on the board of the departmental leaders, whether it's women's ministry or community services or deacons or whatever the group is, and they're supposed to say, in your department, how are you fulfilling the mission, and how can we work together more to get that done? It should be an organizing body for working every member. I'm sorry? Yes. You would think you'd need a special newfangled committee. It's called a board. We're going to get into that in a later document. I promise I'll, I'll give you the documentation. You can look it up for yourself, okay? Um, but that's what it's supposed to do. Um, but one other thing that would you make sure that you have in the behind-the-scenes work is training classes for your members. Training opportunities to train, equip, and educate to deploy every member in some field of the work. But that's gotten lost sight of. Um, Classes held for all members to be effective personal soul winners. All corporate outreach activities, including evangelistic campaigns, are simply an augmentation for what's already going on in the individual work of the church members. So that the reason we have a public evangelistic campaign, let's take public evangelism, for example. Public evangelistic campaigns were never designed to introduce people to the message. Does that make sense? They were designed to be reaping events for after the Bible study has been developed and brought, they were supposed to culminate with that and end in baptisms. And people say, well, why aren't public campaigns yielding as many baptisms? Are you kidding? Let's think about what that expectation is, that people straight off the street who've never heard one word from the present truth message. They get a night about the 2300 days. Check. Another night of Daniel 9. Check. Another night of the sanctuary. Check. Another night of uh, the Sabbath, by the way. Oh, and while you're dealing with that, your grandmother is not in heaven. 
come back tomorrow night and we'll tell you to stop eating pork. You know, like there's a lot, like they're the, whoa, that's a lot. And then when you get done presenting all that, they'll say like, now how many people did you baptize? They're expecting this entire life transformation in three or four weeks. The public campaign was supposed to be a capstone to a much larger process, right? What we refer to as the cycle of evangelism, okay? Every church should be built around the evangelistic cycle. There's a whole other presentation I'll do, but I'll just give you five minutes of this right now. If you, let me just go here. You ever notice that Jesus was always talking about plants, right? He was always harping on this agricultural theme, whether it was seeds or soil or rocks or sowers and uh, crops and the full grain in the ear. He was always talking about agri. Now he talked about sheep and coins and nets and things here and there. But for the most part, he was, his default parable was agricultural. Do you ever notice that? Let me just share with you why I think that's the case. If you go to Isaiah chapter 61, this is where Jesus got his mission statement. Now, the words that we're about to read, you probably are familiar with, but not from Isaiah. They're probably from the Gospel of Luke, or where Jesus you know, goes to his hometown and preaches. Is that Matthew? Uh, somebody will have to check me on that. But Isaiah chapter 61, see if these words are familiar. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what Jesus stood up when he was in Nazareth and read from the scroll and said, this is me. Right? So Jesus clearly saw Isaiah 61 as his personal mission statement, right? And oftentimes we stop there. My guess is that he continued the whole chapter. They didn't have chapter divisions at that point, right? But the whole pericope there. But I want you to go down to verse 11. Isaiah 61 is only 11 verses long, and we usually stop at verses 1 or 2. But notice how Isaiah 61 ends. It tells us how the message of the gospel is going to go to the world. It says, For as the earth brings forth its bud... As the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so. Now you get the construction, the grammatical construction here. As this, so that. Do you understand? So in the same way that the earth brings forth its bud and the garden causes things to grow in it, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all nations. It's an agricultural metaphor for the giving of the gospel to the world. In the same way that the garden brings up the things that are grown in it and they become, that's how the gospel will go to the world. Why was Jesus always talking about plants? Because it was right there in his mission statement. (laughs) He understood this is the method for how the world's going to go, work's going to go. And you notice that if you put the gospel record together, you'll see that Jesus had a mindset of what we call an evangelistic cycle, the cycle of evangelism. This starts with the preparation of the soil, which represents the condition of the heart. That every person who's going to come to the gospel has to be touched in the heart. So Jesus gave a parable about the different conditions of the soil, remember? Some are rocky, some are thorny, but there's some good soil too. And the soil represented the heart of the hearer. 
So we had to look for good soil. And we had to take time preparing the soil. And in the local church, the, some of the soil prep are those outreach events where we do a health expo. We're not, you know, it, it didn't sit down, let me check your blood pressure, and while you're here, let me tell you about, the, you know, the mark of the beast. That might raise their blood pressure, you know. Um, but what you're doing is you're simply doing the disinterested benevolence that Jesus himself did. He went around preaching, teaching, and healing, and not in that order. It was actually the reverse order, healing, teaching, and preaching. So we start with those practical things, like that's what the, by the way, that's what the medical work is supposed to do, that, uh, that disinterested benevolence is supposed to give credibility. Our, let me say it this way. Our good works give credibility to our message, right? And in turn, our message gives significance to our good works, right? So the purpose of good works is, yes, to help them out of their immediate thing, but to introduce them to the greater help that they didn't even realize they needed. So we work the soil. A lot of churches have gotten hung up, however, and say that tilling the soil, doing those outreach and goodwill events like going to community service center and health expos and doing those social help welfare type of things, good things, that is our outreach. Slow down. That is the first step in the work of outreach. But think about it from an agricultural perspective. Why does a farmer till the soil? The purpose is to plant the seed, right? But too often we till the soil, we look back and say, let's do it again. And we just keep tilling the soil until it's all turned up, ready for seed. And no one gives them seed. Planting the seed, think about the parable. What did Jesus say in the parable? The seed is the word of God. And at some point we have to go from preparing the soil to introducing them to Jesus. Either sharing our personal testimony or some literature or some media or some sort of dropping, some sort of something in there. But putting a little seed and watching how it grows, you can do a little test seed every now and then. Just say, praise the Lord and see if they respond positively or if they get angry. Just look for responses and see, just do a little bit, a little bit. Start planting the seed. Okay? One way you can do that is you can have like a, challenge your church leadership to do a glow-a-thon. See how many glow tracks you can give out in a month, you know? And that does not mean taking a stack of 50 and setting them on the bathroom stall in Walmart. You know, that's not, you didn't hand out glow tracks that day. You littered. <laughs> right? Distribution means handing them to someone, putting it in a place strategically that one person will actually get it. You see what I'm saying? Leaving it for the waitress, that kind of thing. Um, but see how many can distribute in a, in a time or, or, or promote a sharing book of, of the month or something like that. But have initiatives where you l purposefully give uh, uh, either your own testimony or literature or media in some way that introduces people to the gospel, okay? Seed sowing. But let's say that someone comes to your health expo and they receive that glow track about the thing that was just really burdening them and they, they were interested. And they're like, that's fascinating. And then you say, would you like to study the Bible with me? Because here's the thing. Every person who becomes a Seventh-day Adventist but not everyone goes to Vacation Bible School, Community Service Center, or a health expo. But every Seventh-day Adventist at some point studies the Bible and comes to a knowledge of the truth from the Word of God. 
It's either personally in a one-on-one Bible study or in a small group or in a public campaign. But at some point, they have to see the gospel, they have to understand the sanctuary, they have to understand the prophetic significance of this movement, and they have to accept it and say, I want to be with that, right? This is, this third step in the agricultural cycle is the great bottleneck that's holding up the work in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. Tilling the soil, even in the agricultural cycle, if you have a decent-sized garden, I mean, you can do it in a day. Sowing the seed, you can do that in a day. The same thing is true with church ministries. You can have a, a, a soil prep event where you have a big health expo and you have a big whatever, the big thing that for the outreach for the community, a big cooking club or something, and um, then it's over. And you can have your glow-a-thon. You can hand out all the glow tracks like the leaves of autumn, and that can go by. But when it comes to the actual work of taking someone step-by-step step through the Word of God, introducing them to Jesus and, and educating them on the points of faith, that is long, slow, weary work, oftentimes not rewarded. But it's necessary. At some point, you're going to have to sit with that person, open up the Bible, and share the Word of God with them. I will challenge you, tell you right now that we need a reformation in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a Bible study reformation. You're going to go to houses that don't look good. I'm telling you, they don't smell good. You're going to work for three months, and they won't get past lesson number four. And then they'll cancel on you, and they'll drop off, and you'll be so dis- What happened? Well, you started. They got distracted. They were a different soil. By the way, look at the parable. Were most soils receptive? No. There was more that fell on the hard ground and the rocky soil and the thorny, but some hit the good soil. So you might be tempted to say, oh, evangelism doesn't work. No, you just found rocky soil. Move on. Do it again. Man, that's going to be long. There's not a lot of good inspirational promo videos for that. You know, There's no t-shirt for that but it's the most necessary work in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now. Cultivation. By the way, it's the same thing that's true in agriculture. You can till the soil, sow the seed, but that waiting, that's why I'm not a farmer. Well, that's one of many reasons I'm not a farmer. But you ever do that thing where you put a seed in the cup and you put a little water on it? And as a kid, they always give it to you as a project or something, and you come back the next day, and what do you have? Dirt. And the next day after that, dirt. It just steeps me in dirt. And finally, I'm done with this dirt cup. You know, I want to see a plant. But you've got to have patience and endure, and sometimes the crop isn't that great, you know? It takes time. You've got to water it. You've got to weed it. They're going to ask questions. When you tell them, by the way, your grandmother's not in heaven, do you think they'll have a question or ten? <laughs> yeah. That takes a minute. You've got to sit there in the kitchen with them and talk. But let's say that they go along through the whole process, and then you need to reap what you have sown. You know, there's a crop, and they've got those fresh little, you know, grape tomatoes of believers right there on the vine. You need to go pluck them. But if you don't ever, like, reap, they're going to rot on the vine. So you've got to reap, right? And that's where evangelistic campaigns, they tended to be the reaping of the work that's already gone before. And then finally, what do you do with them? With the crop? You don't just pluck it and put it on a bucket and admire them. What's going to happen there? They're going to rot on the shelf. You've got to preserve it somehow. You've got to do something with it. Put it into food. Put it to work. To be bread for the eater and seed for the sower. That's a biblical concept too. 
That's where discipleship comes in. As soon as they go through the, to the studies, they, they've heard one message on the seventh-day Sabbath, and they're convicted that it's true, but they, they don't know how to keep the Sabbath. They need to be, I know the word everybody says is discipled. My problem with that is it's not a real word. In order to become a disciple, you have to go through discipline. They're going to get new habits formed in their life. Hey, you shouldn't eat pork. Well, what do I eat? Got to teach them. Study the Bible. How do I do that? You've got to be nurtured. You've got to be walked through. They need to be mentored. Discipleship. Okay. Thus, we have the full cycle of evangelism. A local church must have this concept in mind and have every department, every individual playing a part in that. We must have a revolution, not a revolution, a reformation in the church to come back to these biblical principles. I need to, I have not been watching the time. Good, good. We're just about to land. I want to share with you a couple of statements here from Christian Service. This was written, I believe, to a, a minister who is doing the work of evangelism, as all ministers should. But this counsel was given. You can find it on a Christian service, page 121. Your work may accomplish more real good than the more extensive meetings if they lack in personal effort. So they can have these big, extensive meetings, but if they lack in personal effort, you can do more work on a local stage than the big meetings can if those big meetings don't have the personal work going with it. She explains. When both are combined with the blessing of God, a more perfect and thorough work may be wrought. But then notice, but if we can have one, but one part done, let it be the individual labor of opening the scriptures in households, making personal appeals, and talking familiarly with the members of the family, not about the things of little importance, but about the great themes of redemption. Notice that she's not saying we should be done with public evangelism and just do personal ministry. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, ideally, what would we have? Both combined working together. The personal will be capped off by the public. But she says, if we have to choose one or the other, which is the one we should emphasize? The personal ministry. And in most churches, personal ministries is a rack, right? This has to be the new lifeblood of the church. We're going to talk about that in subsequent seminars. But this is the ministry that has died and nobody noticed. We're all looking to the big events, the big programs, the big names, and what we really need are individual members going door-to-door, -door, giving Bible studies to their neighbors. That's what we need. She says, if you were to have one of the two, the one you should focus on is the personal labor. That's going to yield the best results. And finally, Christian Service, page 12. The real character of the church is measured not by the high profession she makes. You know, I see a lot of churches that say they're, that say they're giving the three angels message to the world. It's a great slogan. But if it's just a profession, it doesn't mean anything. Not by the high profession she makes and not by the names enrolled upon the church book, but by what she is actually doing for the Master, by the number of her persevering faithful workers. Personal interest and vigilant individual effort will accomplish more for the cause of Christ than can be wrought by sermons or creeds. You know, we think about that. I, 
I'm pastoring a church now that has 377 people on the books. And about 160 come to church right now. But anywhere I've been, it's the same thing. And people will say, well, we don't want to audit the books. So we'll make it look like we're a smaller church. Well, you are a smaller church. We should be honest about that. It doesn't, by the way, is it helping those other 150, 180 people just by having their, there is a mentality by having their names on the book means that they're also written in the books of heaven. We must be honest with our members, with ourselves. What is the ministry for? What is my work in the church? What is our task here on earth? So it's not about the profession, and it's not about the membership, but those actually doing the work. Our time has run out. (laughs) But let me ask you again, has our presentation been clear? Are we making sense today? All right. Um, Do we have any time at all? We have three minutes left. I thought it's all hand. Yes, ma'am. And I'm going to repeat the question back for the audio recording, so I'm not just echoing you. I'm doing it on purpose. Go ahead. Yes. How do you go about reaching out to those people? Right. So the question is, how do you go about reclaiming those who might have their names on the book, but they're not active in attendance or participation? Okay. Um, There's probably several answers to give. Number one, that's a very hard task because many people who have been in the church are often the hardest to reclaim. Uh, I mean, I guess you can only reclaim that, that which was once claimed. But the approach that I've taken, the church manual outlines the that you cannot remove someone from membership just for non-attendance, okay? But odds are, if they've been away from the church for five or ten years, there's some apostasy going on, whether it's Sabbath breaking or or an inappropriate relationship or some sort of wandering from the faith in some lifestyle, something. Uh, So the way that you typically go about doing that, and I think it's probably the best that we've got, is to seek out the information, the last contact information, and try to talk to them. Call them on the phone, visit them, and just physically reach out and say, hi, how are you? And it's great, especially if you're the new pastor or if you're new to the church or new since their time, you can say, you know, I've only been a member here for this long, and I've noticed I don't think we've met yet, and I just wanted to introduce myself. How you been? Are you, you coming to church this week? And they'll, they'll probably tell you a story of what happened. Nine times out of ten, it's about sister so-and-so or brother who's and what's not, you know? Um... But at least they're talking. Get them talking. Don't just take their name to the church business session. And you're like, oh, these people haven't been here. They're probably in apostasy. Don't do that. Um, but, but personal visit, the personal touch, the direct contact. Um, in, in the process of doing this, I have seen members come back. I've also seen members say, I really appreciate you asking. I want my name dropped. I'm sorry that's your decision, but I at least appreciate the honesty that we have. By the way, how are you supposed to treat former members of the church, according to Jesus? Like tax collectors, right? And sinners. How do we treat tax collectors and sinners? We try to win them back, right? So the very next thing I would do is invite them to the very next evangelistic campaign. Let's start over. I don't know what your experience has been, but let's give it another shot. But just be real with them. Be people with them. I don't know if that helped, but that's what I got. Any other questions? Yes, sir. How has your church family responded 
the church families that I have been pastoring for the last few years uh, have had different, have had varying results. And um, I can tell you that the church that has most responded, I'm, t- I'm in a church now, so I'm not going to say anything about whether they're doing it well or not because this is being recorded. But, <laughs> no, no, I think that there, there is definitely a core who are very interested in being more outreach-minded, more evangelistic, more personal ministries. Um, and, and we'll talk about some of that in subsequent meetings. But the, let me tell you about one church in particular, and I'll use it by name because it's a good report. The Muskegon Church. Uh, I was just there for the last four years, and I've been one year in Kalamazoo. Uh, in the Muskegon Church, we had about um, we had about ten to twelve people or so go to a ten day Emmanuel training session, and they came back. What are we going to do with? It? And they just started doing stuff, and they started going doing outreach three out of four Sabbath afternoons. Um, and the success, the ultimate success of these principles was when I was gone. I left in um, June of last year. Two Junes ago, I guess. I'm not good at math, but anyway. It was, I got a report from six months later. I got a report from the treasurer. He said, I just want to let you know that this year we've had our great tithe returns. Our, our budget is doing this. We've purchased these things. We've held two evangelistic campaigns since you've been gone. And um, things are going great. And at first I was like, oh, I did such good work. Then I was like, wait a minute, I've been gone, and they're doing fine without me. <laughs> and they went, over another, they went over a year without a pastor. And in that time, they had two or three evangelistic campaigns. And, I've, and by the way, the new pastor of the Muskegon Church is the evening presenter, Jason Sliger. Okay? He's really excited because they've, the last campaign that they had, he arrived as the pastor, and he was a former AFCO evangelist. But they said, we've got this. You're just new. Just get settled in. We'll take care of it. And he was like, so he attended, but he didn't preach it. He was like, this is the coolest thing ever. And uh, they come up, and they've had seven baptisms from these lay people giving, and they've got about another 10 to 15 who are in the works to get baptized. Lay lay ministry. Now, I'm not saying that we should have no pastors. I'm saying that we should focus our pastoral work instead of doting on the members who are here, training, equipping them, and expanding the work right, uh, into new areas, because there's new territories. Even in Michigan, that's the longest, conf- longest, uh, most, cr- how do I say that? The, the earliest conference in the Seventh-day Adventist Church was Michigan. We predated the general conference. It's the only conference to do that. Um, the, the whole idea of having a general conference is because Michigan's doing that. Let's have other ones do it. Let's call it a general conference. And uh, we've been around for that long, but there's still a whole lot of dark areas that don't have this message. There's still a lot of communities that don't have a church. There's still a lot of places that haven't been reached right here in the longest-held denominational outpost we have. So I would say that there's still work to do, and we must go about redeeming the time. All right, any other questions? I know we're running, running out on our time clock. Yes, ma'am. Just to clarify, at the beginning you said you mentioned small groups. I did mention small groups in the beginning, yes. Yeah, but the, the ministries that die and nobody noticed. Personal ministries. Yes, personal ministries. But personal ministries can be done in small groups, right? The personal work, what I mean by personal ministries is the work of the membership in all the facets of church work. Yes, in the internal stuff, but particularly in outreach, in evangelism, and giving personal Bible studies and that kind of thing. So uh, we could talk about the functional structures. We're going to talk about this more as we go on. 
I kind of have to cut this off, but it w- I would launch into a tirade, and we don't have time for it. Okay. Let's quickly bow our heads for a word of prayer as we dismiss. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for our time. Thank you for this uh, great responsibility that you've entrusted us with. Please, by your grace, bring us up to the level we need to be. Help each one of us to feel the burden for lost souls and to be sharing our faith effectively. Let our churches corporately be training centers so that every member can be a missionary and we can hasten the coming of Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Thank you all. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.